Well, excited to be in a new sermon series today through uh, several psalms, as Danny mentioned, over these next nine weeks. So if you would, go ahead and turn there in a Bible. And if you don't have a Bible, one of our hosts will, will provide one for you. Turn to the book of Psalms. We're going to be in Psalm chapter 2 today, and uh, that's on page 418 in the Bibles that are being handed out. If you don't have a Bible, that's a gift to you, uh, from us to you. We hope you take it and read it. Uh, and enjoy it. And the book of Psalms is a uh, 150 chapters. There's lots of them, and uh, they're very meaningful for us because they cover the range of human emotions. Let me ask briefly: What emotions have you felt this year? Have you felt happiness, joy, sorrow, disappointment, despair, trial, or loss? What have been the attitude or the tone? of your prayers before God? Have, have your prayers been full of praise and thanksgiving or lament, difficulty in the midst of trial? What, what kind of songs do you find yourself gravitating to right now in this current season of your life? If uh, someone's driving past you and the windows are rolled down, are they going to hear praise coming out the windows because you're just so excited about life singing along to the radio? Or are you more likely to put earbuds in, put a hat on, go for a long run by yourself because there's something, maybe songs of lament or challenge or sorrow that you would prefer right now. See, there's something about songs, there's something about music that really does capture the human emotion, that, that it, it really does express what's going on deep inside of our hearts. And there's also something about songs or poems that shape us, that are, that are forming us as people, what we listen to, the songs that we have, have a way of, of forcing a type of experience on us as well. There was one Scottish politician back in the 16th or 1700s who said, let me write the songs of a nation and I care not who writes its laws. And what he was trying to say in that statement is not that laws don't matter. No, they do a great deal. But laws often come out of people's hearts and aspirations and affections. So what he's trying to say, if I can write the songs for people, if I can shape people's hearts, minds, and affections, well then that'll be a way of, of shaping the laws of a society. S songs shape our thoughts and affections. They capture our hearts' joy, delight, and even sorrow and despair. So as we, as we begin this nine-week series through the book of Psalms, as we examine different kinds of psalms, Psalms of royalty, of, of, of kingship, as we'll be in today, or songs of praise, or thanksgiving, or even songs of lament, despair, or even imprecatory, where we're praying against our enemies. We, we see the, the diversity of the Psalter in the diversity of our own human emotion. So before I begin the sermon, I want to give four uh, encouragements for examining or reading the Psalms. Four encouragements for examining the Psalms. First... The Psalms provide a helpful prayer guide. The Psalms are a helpful prayer guide. A good devotional practice is to read a Psalm and pray through the, the themes of that Psalm. Some of us, you know, maybe your prayers feel rote or they feel tired or they, you don't always know what words to use as you pray. Read a Psalm and pray a prayer in light of the themes that are expressed in there. Uh, in our resource center, we actually have a, a journal with uh, it's a psalm on one side and a blank notes on the other side. So you might find this summer as a good devotional practice to, to read a psalm and then write a prayer out to the Lord in light of what you've read in one of those psalms. 
Secondly, consider the setting of the psalm. Consider the setting. As we understand the impact of a psalm, it's helpful to consider its historical context as best we can. And oftentimes, uh, we'll see a subscript or superscript in the psalms that will describe a little bit of the context of which that psalm was written. For instance, in Psalm 51, we know that that was David's confession of repentance after his sin with Bathsheba. And in Hebrew, actually, that subscript is verse 1. So those are important things that help shape our understanding. Thirdly, read the Psalms as Christian scripture. Read the Psalms as Christian scripture. In Luke 24, verse 44, Jesus says that of himself that these words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Those are essentially the three categories of the Old Testament. And he's saying all those things are written about me, and he includes the Psalms as part of that. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises, of all the expectations, of all the joys and affections of the Psalms. And he says so of himself. The church has used the Psalms in worship for over 2,000 years. So the Psalms were the the songbook for the Hebrews. This is what the nation of Israel would have sung to remind themselves of the truths of God's promises. But it's not just a songbook for the Hebrews, it's the songbook for the church. And then finally... Read the Psalms to know God. Read the Psalms to know God. Jim Hamilton in his commentary on the Psalms says this, We love the Psalms because in them we encounter God. The Psalms are true history, fulfilled prophecy, and enduring praise. This book of Psalms is is a school of prayer, a fountain of truth, and a revelation of God himself. We will not master this book, but oh, that it might master us becoming the pulse to which our hearts beat and the soil in which our souls take root. See, the Psalms, like the songs that we sing, are meant to communicate Bible truths, but, they, but it's sung in a way that, that rests it deep into our hearts because it reveals the character, the promises, and the plan of God. We're calling this series Steadfast, Rejoicing in the Enduring Love of God. One of the themes in the Psalms is the steadfast love of God that endures forever. You might be familiar with Psalm 136, where every verse repeats that phrase, the steadfast love of God endures forever. So regardless as to the emotions or the circumstances that you may feel right now in life, we can rejoice in God's steadfast love. If you feel down in the dumps, in despair, challenge, difficult circumstances, the psalmist calls you to rejoice in the steadfast love of God. If you feel on the mountaintops, you're experiencing the blessing of God and and are enjoying Him, well, God tells you to rejoice in the steadfast love of God. In all of our circumstances, God's steadfast love will keep us faithful. As part of this series, I'm asking uh, somebody to join me um, to, to read our psalm for us. And this week, uh, Dana Lawrence, our director of women's ministry, is going to read from Psalm 2. So go ahead and turn there if you haven't already, Psalm 2. Dana has been our women's ministry director for just under a decade, and she and her husband, Mark, have been part of our church for 33 years. And I'm grateful for their contribution and encouragement to us. So would you please stand in the honor of reading of God's word as Dana reads for us. This is God's word, Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. 
He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Psalm 2. This is God's word. You may be seated. We begin with Psalm 2 today because the first two psalms, Psalm 1 and 2, set a type of introduction to the rest of the Psalter. Pastor Mike, several years ago, preached from Psalm 1. You're happy, welcome to get online and listen to that message from the summer of 2021. Um, but today, I'll make some important connections, and we'll see those connections between Psalm 1 and 2 uh, in the sermon today. The songs of Israel are about true blessedness, happiness under God's law and under God's kingdom, under God's rule. And similar to the songs that we sing, where these songs are meant to remind us of God's character, of his rule, of his plan for us. And Psalm 2 is a royal psalm. It reminds us who is really in control. It reminds us as who is really on the throne. And our main idea today, if you're following on your worship program, is that the rebellion of the nations cannot frustrate the reign of the king. The rebellion of the nations cannot frustrate the reign of the king. Now you might hear that main idea already and say, What do you say? You mean, have you seen the world around us, Zach? You see the challenges of believers around the world, persecution in various countries, uh, challenges in our own place. It can be difficult to be a Christian in in various uh, areas of our society, or righteousness seems, or unrighteousness seems to, to reign, and righteousness seems to be very out of vogue. What do you mean that? that the rebellion of the nations cannot frustrate the reign of the king. Well, brothers and sisters, as as Christians, if you're a believer in here today, you need to be reminded of who's really on the throne, of who God is. And then all of us, believer or non-believer, whatever circumstance you find yourself in here today, we need to be reminded of who we are. And as we see both who God is and who we are, we'll clearly see that the rebellion of the nations cannot frustrate the reign of the king. Psalm chapter 2 is divided up clearly into four different sections. We're going to walk through those uh, throughout the sermon. So the first section in verses 1 through 3, we see the rebellion of the nations. The rebellion of the nations. Verse 1, the psalmist writes, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. See, these few verses already uh, describe the kind of independence that everyone desires against God. Now, in this context, the the nations, the kings of the earth, would have been the Gentile nations, those outside of the nation of Israel. 
But those kings are really just representatives for all of the people. So they reject God's word and they reject God's king. And Psalm 1 describes that the blessed man is is one who walks not in the way of sinners, but he is the one who delights himself in the law of the Lord. He is is like a tree planted by streams of water. And those streams of water is like he is planted deeply in God's word and under God's rule. But these kings take counsel together to try to burst the bonds of God's rule and reign and word over their own life. But this challenge, though, is not unique only to Gentile kings. This was true of of Israelite kings as well. My own personal devotions this week, I was reading Jeremiah 36. And in Jeremiah 36, he hears the word of the Lord. He had his scribe write the word of the Lord. But then King Jehoiakim reads the word of the Lord. And after each column, he cuts it, throws it in the fire. He hears the word, cuts the word, and burns the word. So it's not just Gentile kings, those outside of the nation of Israel, who are rejecting the promises and the word and the rule of God. This was the challenge of many Israelite kings as well. Those nations reject God's word and therefore they reject God as king, his anointed king. There's a concerted effort against the Messiah. That word uh, anointed is where we get our transliterated word into English, Messiah. And there's a concerted effort, the council of those who come together and say, let's burst their bonds. So already we have this description of the kings of the nations gathering together and saying, how can we get outside of God's rule? How do we get ourselves outside of God's reign? I know what we'll do. We'll burst the bonds of God against us. And we'll cast away their cords. The bonds that they're casting off is God's rule. They're they're casting off as Psalm 1 to describe the the word of God. They they want everything to be outside of him. They, They view, like many modern people do, that committing themselves to Christianity, committing themselves to a religion, committing themselves to a relationship with God that would, that would constrict some of their inner feelings is a bad thing. Because it's my individual self that right, is the ultimate authority. So if I'm feeling something on the inside and, and that I want to do, but, then, but God and his word tells me not to do it, well, that God could not be good. Why would he get, how many times have we heard this? Why would he give me those feelings and then tell me not to do it? So the answer must be burst the bonds. Get rid of the outside constrictions. See, we love independence in this country, don't we? We just spent a whole week essentially celebrating independence. We love independence so much, we light stuff on fire and watch it explode in the sky to celebrate our independence. See, we think in, in our country that the, the rule of a, a royal power is tyrannical, it's, a, it's oppressive. The signers of the Declaration of Independence recognized what they were doing. They were severing ties to a royal power outside of them. Now, friends, this can be a good idea for a nation. But it is a terrible idea for human beings to sign a Declaration of Independence against the Holy God. The believers in Acts chapter 4 recognized 
They applied Psalm 2 to their own day because they were arrested, they were persecuted for sharing the gospel, for sharing how Jesus alone is the way to have true salvation. They were arrested for that. They, they were told to never speak of that again. But when they, when they were free, they get together and they pray. And they, they quoted Psalm chapter 2 to remind themselves that the nations, the peoples plot in vain against the Lord and against his anointed. We must recognize, brothers and sisters, that we live in a world that will not always be welcoming to the claims of Christ, to the truths of Scripture. We must see that. There are governments in our day, or there are institutions in our day that are intentionally trying to malign Christianity or trying to, to hold it back. But the truth is not just that governments do that. The truth is not just that other powers or institutions will, are, are trying to avoid the Lord and burst his bonds. The truth is every human soul on the face of the planet has signed their own personal declaration of independence from a holy God. The rebellion of the nations is the rebellion of every human heart. Naturally, we tried to burst the bonds of God's yoke and we see this kind of expressive individualism all over the place. Expressive individualism, is, expressive individualism is this idea that the self is ultimate. What's going on inside of me is the ultimate authority. So I should always do or always be everything that my inside mind or heart tells me to be. We, we see this in follow your heart. Be true to yourself. And society and culture picks up on this all the time. There's a, a good Disney, well, a Disney movie that talks about this very idea. And Elsa, God bless her, she thinks she needs to throw off every kind of outside constraint on her life. She's lived a good life. She's been this great princess. She's, she's lived a moral life. Everything around it, she's, she's fit the mold that she was told to. But, but, but eventually she needs to be true to herself. Eventually she has to follow her own heart. And she sings this. Don't let them in. I know you guys didn't expect me to quote this today. <laughs> don't let them in. Don't let them see. Be the good girl you always have to be. Conceal, don't feel. Don't let them know. See, up until this point, she's not really lived a true, authentic life. Up to this point in her life, she's not been true to herself. She's concealed everything really inside of her. Well, now they know. So let it go. Test the limits and break through. Notice, no right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. And that is the anthem of every human heart. Why put constraints from a holy God? Why put constraints on your life from God's word? Why, why shape yourself at all? Be free. No rules. That's not necessary. Let out everything inside of you. We hear this all the time. But brothers and sisters, that's not true authenticity. That's rebellion. See, there can be a good thing to individualism. That's not all bad, of course. But when we look to God and say, I'm going to burst your bonds from me. I'm going to cast off the cords from outside constraints. You've got nothing on me, God. That's rebellion. So David, the writer of the psalm, recognizes the sin sinful condition of our world, the sin sinful condition of every human heart. So the nations rage and fury. The nations rebel against the Lord they, and they, and, and because they perceive that the Lord is this evil taskmaster. He's not sovereign and merciful. He, he's just, he's 
unnecessary. Why would a good God ever do that? But see, the response to this rebellion, we don't find God in a corner wondering, oh no, what's going to happen? No, we see the reign of the divine king, that he is really still on the throne. Look at verses 4 through 6. Verse 4 says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. See, in response to the nation's rebellion, God laughs, he speaks, and he reigns. First, he laughs. There is a heavenly hilarity at the idea that nations can oppose God. God is not chuckling at a joke. He is not, he is not, just, um, he's not being amused in some kind of a gesture before him. No, he laughs as if to mock those who think they can oppose God. We have this anthropomorphic, this, this human way of describing a divine action, of seeing God on his throne, almost falling off the chair, thinking, hey, God, they came in thinking that they can oppose you and burst the bonds from you. Ha! It, it, it requires, there's no cowering in the corner. There's simply laughter because the idea is hilarious. Brothers and sisters, God laughs at every cultural idea that denies his truth. He laughs at every individual who thinks they can oppose God. He laughs at any so-called opposition. Jonathan Edwards, in his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, says there is no fortress that is any defense from the power of God. In Isaiah chapter 40, we see these descriptions of this comparison between God and the nations. The nations are first described as a drop in the bucket. Imagine the rain and just another raindrop. They're just another raindrop. All the nations drip. The nations are described there in Isaiah 40 as, as a sand on the scales. I don't know the last time you got on the scale, you saw the number. Well, just imagine adding a, a few grains of sand to that. Chances are, it won't change the number. The nations are merely sand on the scales compared to Holy God. Finally, the nations in Isaiah 40 are described as grasshoppers. This morning, as I was, came in here to go to the restroom, walk inside the restroom, there was a decent-sized spider on the floor. Some of you wimps would have cowered at that spider. But, but God views, views the nations not as something to cower from, but as something that he is completely superior over. A grasshopper or a spider is nothing to a human foot. Therefore, the nations are nothing compared to a holy God. God laughs at the opposition. Now God speaks in verse 5, he, he speaks to them in his wrath. He terrifies them in his fury. We get the sense of God's anger. We get the sense of that he, is, is, is righteous, he has righteous indignation as to what is going on. Now, you might think God is said to be a, God, a gracious God. 
He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And that remains true. And somebody after first service had a great question about, hey, how can both of these ideas be true? Well, I think first we need to see it as God's anger is not like our anger. God is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. But, but God's anger is, does not fly off the handle. It is measured. It is, it is serious. It is intentional. It is, it is the right response because it's divine. We don't have to worry about, we, we know exactly how, God will tell us exactly how he'll respond. What's challenging about somebody when they're angry is when it's unexpected, right? When you're walking around eggshells about somebody or you really don't know what you're going to get when that person comes through the door, God is not like that. He describes exactly how he will execute his anger. But then secondly, and this is probably most important, anger, righteous anger, is a right response in love. Indifference, brothers and sisters, is not loving. Indifference to injustice, to abuse, to mistreatment is not loving. Imagine a parent who is not angered at the abuse of their child. Imagine a friend who is not angered at the mistreatment of their best friend. No, God God responds. It is right for him in love because he is loving, because he is just, that he speaks to them in his fury, that he speaks to them in his anger because they have rebelled against him. He is angry at human sin because he is a just and loving God. And then God reigns. In verse 6, we see God says, As for me, I have set my king... On Zion, my holy hill. God finally described his reign is through a divinely anointed king. And Acts 4 makes it clear that David was the one who wrote this psalm. And yet the temple did not exist yet on Zion until later. That didn't arrive until Solomon's reign. So when David speaks of God saying, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. He's describing God's promises to establish a a Davidic dynasty, a kingdom forever in David's line. And we see this described in 2 Samuel chapter 7. That's a a passage that every believer should be familiar with. 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, verses 4 through 17, describe this Davidic covenant. This is where God promises that someone will rule and reign in David's line forever. It starts in 2 Samuel 7 with David saying, I'm going to build a house for God. But God says, no, David, you're not going to build a house for me. I'm going to build a house for you. Here, this extended reading from 2 Samuel 7, verse 9. God says, and I have been with you wherever you went, and I have cut off your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. And when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he will build a house for my name and I will establish his throne, his throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. Notice, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. 
See, David, when David writes Psalm chapter 2, I have to imagine that he has the promises of the covenant given in 2 Samuel chapter 7 right on his mind. He knows that God is establishing his kingdom. He knows that God is building for him a house. He knows that God will rule through his appointed king. The challenge of the Old Testament, though, is that we get through the books of 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles. Quite frankly, we get to the end of the Old Testament and we have no king, no name, no throne, no blessing. So people listening to that or knowing those promises would probably look at God and say, what gives? Where's that king to rule on David's throne? But then we turn to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. See, the seed of David was coming. David could write, God could say, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill, knowing that the serpent crusher, knowing that the true king was coming. Remember what Jesus said in Luke 24? For everything written about me in the Psalms must be fulfilled. See, Jesus is that true appointed king. Jesus is the one who reigns and rules. Jesus is the one in control. So God laughs, he speaks, he reigns. And in light of his reign, he gives then a royal proclamation of this Davidic king, of God's son. Verses 7 through 9 describe this royal proclamation. It's as if somebody is coming and saying, Hear ye, hear ye, the king speaks. And what does he say? Verse 7. I will tell of the, of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. See, in this proclamation, we see the identity of the king, we see the king's inheritance, and we see the king's power. The king's identity is that he is the, the king's son. He is the divine son. Sonship language is used all throughout the Bible as an important term to denote somebody's true identity. Adam is called God's son. Israel is called God's son. David is called God's son. This king that will rule in, in, in God's place, that will rule through him, is not some distant politician that we elect. Many of us who maybe cram right before election day, which is not a bad idea, and by the way, is to you know, get online and you're looking at, okay, what am I voting for? What issues are there? Who am I voting? Who's up against one another? And you do a, a quick examination of the issues uh, and of the people, and then you cast a vote based on uh, some of the research that you've done. But Few of us really know the people that we're electing, right? We, we cast a vote for a distant person of which we really have no personal relationship with. But this king is not that kind of distant politician. This king is God's own son. Think of the best of, of father-child relationships that you can imagine. Maybe you weren't blessed with a great relationship with your parents, but, but you maybe you saw somebody and said, I wish that's what I would have had. Or you parent in such a way of saying, I, I want to have a rich relationship with my kids. Think of the best of parent relationships with a child that you can imagine. And the love that's there and the, the meaning that's there. And now multiply that by a billion. And we still haven't even scratched the surface of the divine relationship between the father and the son. 
See, we're seeing this Trinitarian language that's going on here. We're, we're seeing that from all of eternity past, that there has been a begotten relationship from the Father and the Son through the Spirit. That there was never a time that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, did not exist. That He has always existed in perfect love and relationship through the Spirit with His Father. So when He comes to reign and rule, He's coming on the authority of the triune God. We see this this sonship language described of Jesus several times in his ministry. In Matthew chapter 3, we see this, that Jesus' baptism, that the Father speaks from heaven. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We see this later in, after the transfiguration in Matthew 17, where, where the Father says, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. See, Adam, Israel, and David All sons of God, but they all failed. But a greater son of God, he will be the one who reigns and rules in all righteousness and perfection. The son of God also has an inheritance. He has great wealth. Verse 6 talks about the nations going from rebelling from God to now being his anointed inheritance. Earlier we read of the Davidic covenant where this righteous king will rule and reign in God's place. But now we can think about the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 through 3. The promises there is that through Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And then Galatians 3 describes how it is in Christ that all the nations, every tribe, language, people, and tongue, will experience the blessing of God as they respond righteously, rightly, through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus has come for all peoples. He has come for, for an inheritance, to receive what is due him, and that is the righteous inheritance, the worship of all the peoples of the earth. We see this promise fulfilled in Revelation when people from every tribe, language, and tongue, from people from every ethnicity are gathered around the throne giving praise to the Lamb. Notice the contrast. The rebellion of the nations. Those very nations who rebel against God are the very nations who respond as the inheritance of the divine king. They will return. And finally, we see the king's Rule as one of victory. The psalmist David here is intentional with his play on words. In verse 9 he says, You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. See, earlier we see the nations trying to burst their bonds from God. They're trying to to rid themselves, uh, uh, to rebel in independence. But here it's the divine son. It's the king who's speaking, who says, No, he will be the one who has victory. He will be the one who reigns and rules. So the identity of the king is he's God's son. The inheritance of the king is that he receives the praise of all the nations. But the power of the king is seen in his victory. Which leads us to our final point. Of a rebel warning and invitation. A rebel warning and invitation. This gets pretty serious here. Because this is the response to that divine decree. If the decree is that the sun will come and reign and rule, he'll dash people to pieces like a potter's vessel. Imagine a glass that fell over in your house and it just shattered into a billion pieces. That's the victory of the sun, or how it's described. So this final 
passage, these final verses, call for a response to the decree. Now therefore, O kings, verse 10, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. See, he's calling for wisdom here. He's calling to take in every account. So so the psalmist here provides both a wisdom through warning and a wisdom through invitation. The wisdom through warning is the wrath that is quickly kindled. That God, through his son, will execute judgment on all those who rebel against him. The sad reality, the difficult reality of the scripture is that it teaches that every human being has sinned against the holy and righteous God. And that in light of their sin, in light of our sin, we deserve God's right wrath and anger. And for all those who continue in their rebellion, they can experience that right wrath. Edwards in that sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, has a beautiful images, beautiful as in they're, they're rich, but uh, they're, they're dark, they're challenging. And he says, our sin is like a lead weight. It's a heavy weight. And that we are, no, we are no more able to keep ourselves out of hell as a spider's web is to hold up that lead weight if it falls. Brothers and sisters, if you are in rebellion against God, the sad, difficult news of Scripture is that you stand under God's right wrath and he will destroy you if you do not repent. But the news and the invitation of this psalm as well. Notice the last phrase. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. He says, kiss the son. That is pay homage to the son. That is is to see the son, the king, for all of his worth. That is to to reject every other God, reject every other thing to give me meaning and significance, but to fall down face flat before the Son and say, you and you alone are the one worthy. You and you alone are the King. I don't find myself in seeking inward. I find myself in seeking upward. I find joy and delight in God. That it's, it's allegiance to Jesus that is ultimate. That's what those who are being baptized this evening, and I hope you can come, those who are being baptized this evening are, are confessing their allegiance to God and God alone. This is not a casual or flippant exercise. This is reverential awe to say that refuge is found in Christ. What holds you back from that kind of devotion? What holds you back from seeing Jesus as the ultimate joy What holds you back from, from rather than viewing Christianity as a list of do's and don'ts, but that viewing a relationship with Jesus as as a source of all freedom, of joy. See, a rebel isn't free. A rebel's on the run. Years ago, in the the town close to where I grew up, there was a, a large prison there, and there was an inmate who escaped. And in the town closest to that prison, my cousin was working at a general store. And a couple of days after this inmate escaped, uh, my cousin was working and in walked this escaped inmate. The way my cousin told the story is that he didn't look free at all. He looked exhausted. He was tired. He was hungry. 
Because a rebel on the run isn't really free. But see, but those who rebel against God are invited to take refuge in God. To take refuge in God is to be reconciled to the creator who made you. To take refuge in Christ is to respond and say, I repent of my sin. I trust in you and you alone for all that you've done for me. The wrath that is coming upon rebels has already been diverted through a substitute. That Christ took your place, took our place on the cross to drink in all the wrath of God that every sinner deserves. So that for everyone who responds in faith and repentance is no longer a rebel, rebel, but now has found refuge in the Son. See, the rebellion of the nations cannot frustrate the reign of the king because the king reigns. The king has won. And the king invites every single one of us to have refuge in him. May you find the refuge and the joy of your soul in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful that you reign as king. We're grateful that you are the one who provides true blessedness, who establishes our steps, who changes our hearts, and we pray that you would do that. I pray, Lord, that we would fall under your sovereignty, that we would fall under your rule, that we would submit ourselves to you, and in that submission, we would find the greatest joy of all of our hearts in knowing you. May we no longer live the exhausted life of a rebel. May we live the refuge life of a child of God. In Jesus' name, amen.